Good morning, church. Um, as Joe said, this weekend was pretty extraordinary. We had the Pure Desire Conference. And when people ask what is the Pure Desire Conference, it's always a little bit awkward. I mean, it's called the Pure Desire Conference. I went and tried to meet the uh, team that was flying in from Oregon uh, at the airport. I got the flight number wrong. And uh, actually, I got the flight number right. I got the wrong flight. But anyway, I was there on Thursday. I was there to pick them up. And so I go to the airport, but I didn't recognize anybody. And I was too embarrassed to go up to these strangers and be like, you're with Pure Desire, you know? I mean, and that's our first taste of Missoula. And it just didn't seem to come across very well. But uh, I think it might have been Tom or somebody else in the middle of the conference. They come up to me and they're like, this isn't a conference about porn. This is about family. And I'm like, actually, it kind of is, because we talked about everything. We talked about who you, uh, you know, who your parents are, and, and maybe you've experienced trauma in your life, and brain science, and all these different factors. It was a fascinating conference. I hope we're able to do something similar in, in the near future, but I think the most encouraging part was we had over 100 people there, and uh, there was so much interaction, as Joe already said. We had six, seven, maybe eight different churches represented, and they all sort of, um, they just gelled really, really well with each other, and, and we have a number of people who are wanting to become leaders, and then those that really need some help, and so they want to be uh, in a particular group, and so I'm excited about where we're going with things. Regarding Echo, we're called Echo because we're a reflection, each and every one of you. You are a resonation of the love of God, period. You were made in His image, but you were made for a specific purpose, at a specific time, and you're here now, but the way in which you're living out your life, the love that you then give to other people, believe it or not, you're not actually the source. He's the source. You're a reflection of that. And so we live that out right here in Missoula on the ground in very tangible ways. We roll up our sleeves, and we try to go where the darkness is. We want to connect with people that desperately need help. And so that's the essence of our church. We're in the middle of a series. This series is called Knowing Oh, you have the thing. There you go. Knowing Jesus, which is a big concept. I mean, if you Google it up, what does that mean to know Jesus? And so I reached back into my early years. Actually, it was my senior year of high school. I went to a communications class just on a whim. And the teacher said when we walked in, he goes, well, if you thought you were giving a speech this week, you're wrong. Because first you have to learn how to be an audience. And all of us were like, we don't even know what that means. And then we began to learn communication theory. And basically what it is is this, is as somebody who's going to communicate, you are putting your message into a particular channel. It's being bombarded by noise, which distorts the message. But then the receiver, depending on how well they listen or how well they receive that message, hopefully the message will be, there will, there will be little interruption in the message. And so I take that theory and I say, all right, what does that mean if we're going to try to know Jesus? What does that mean? How do you know Jesus? And I gave you a theory that I also have, and that is if you actually love people, which means that you're going to allow your worldview to draw closer to their worldview and to understand them better, there will be less noise and that the message will become more clear. And what if we were to apply that to this idea of knowing Jesus? What does it mean to draw closer and closer in such a way that we're able to filter out more and more noise. And so this is a long series. We started it about five weeks ago, 
And uh, essentially, I've been laying down the groundwork saying, all right, if we're going to get to know Jesus, then we have to know the Word of God. We have to know the Scriptures that have been given to us, at least to some degree. I mean, you've got you to gotta understand, God gave us this thing. What are we supposed to do with it? And so we talked about the authors of the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, only two of which were apostles, right? Uh, Luke is some physician that they call the, this, this, I was going to say great physician, that was Jesus, uh, the physician. And he, he goes around and collects all these different eyewitness reports and he puts them together. And essentially, he, he writes almost a third of the New Testament if you put Luke and then Acts together. And then you got Mark, who honestly wasn't very courageous, but then had a really amazing come to Jesus moment where he suddenly said, you know what, I'm going to go into the mission field. And he went alongside Paul and Peter and others, and he learned all, all sorts of things, and he pinned it down into a gospel account. And we talk about this, and I talk about the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees and the fact that you don't see Pharisees in the Old Testament at all. You don't even see this thing called synagogue in the Old Testament, but boy, you sure see a lot of it in the New. And so if you're interested in that type of thing, I encourage you to look at the podcast. We also have worksheets that I've passed out every Sunday, and you'll be getting one today as well in a little while. I'm not sure when they went. I'm hoping my son grabbed them, but um, I want to Go ahead and dive into the life of Christ. I feel as though we've laid enough groundwork. We've talked about the geography, the people, the customs, the Roman Empire, all the rest of it. So what happened? I'm going to skip over some details that you might think are important, such as his birth. I figure if the writer of Mark, you know, Mark, when he's writing his, his gospel, if he can do it, I can do it. Uh, but basically, we're going to skip over it mainly because we focus a lot on the birth, especially around Christmas time. And I think you understand there were, there were a number of different factors involved, shepherds and kings and wise men and all this stuff. There was a slaughter of babies. There was all sorts of details. And I think you know those particular details. But Jesus arrives on this earth in a way that you would not expect a king to arrive on this earth. And then there's this period of time which we call the preparation years. And honestly, there's not a whole lot written. You know, it's, it's when he grows up. It's when he's a child, but then he goes through those, you know, awkward tween years, and there's a little bit that's written about, including this particular story. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 2. It says, now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, he went up there, according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. They just supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a full day's journey. When they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances, they did not find him, so they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Verse 46, then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. A legitimate question <laughs> and emphasis. What's his response? Let's pray, guys. Gracious God, I thank you for today. I thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, as we continue to draw closer to Jesus Christ, as we try to understand what it means to actually know him, may our hearts be tender. May our minds be open. May we try not to fall back on the things that we think we know, 
Help us to approach Scripture with a freshness. Help us to accept whatever the Spirit is telling us and allow your Spirit to move mightily in this church and among each of us personally. Lord, I ask personally that you just be with me, uh, that you examine my motives and then also that you examine my words. May they be your words. Be with us today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus says to them, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? <laughs> I love this verse. But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. He's like, get in the caravan or whatever. And he's like, and he went down with them and he came back to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. It's interesting because the commentary that I was looking at said that Christ seems, this, Jesus Christ seems to tax them with ignorance or at least forgetfulness of his having a father who is in heaven, whose business he came to do on earth. But I mean, seriously, can you honestly expect poor Mary and Joseph to think that way? This is their kid. He's 12 years old. How many of you have had 12 year old? I need to be careful what I'm about to say. They're beautiful people but they can be a little scattered, right? Okay, and how many of you have lost your child, right? Even if it's for a few hours, do you understand the amount of panic that sits inside? I mean, think about this. They're just trying to be good parents. Could they really be faulted for this? Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I actually have another father. In fact, I'm not really the kind of human being you think I am. And somehow at the age of 12, he knows this. But what does it mean for us? You see, today's lesson is about this strange collision that occurs between two natures. It's very difficult for us to understand. I think it's really important that we at least try, that we at least come to some measures of conclusion. But you have a measure of our, the attribute of humanity, and then you have the attribute of deity. And Jesus Christ has both of these. It's difficult because even for Joseph and Mary, I mean, how are they supposed to raise a child who's like this? Even after he reprimands them. So if they were in the dark before, well, he brought a little bit of light in now, but what does that even mean? Like when she calls him in for dinner and Jesus is not with the other kids, is she supposed to be like, someone go to the synagogue, he's probably over, the, you know? I mean, like, are they supposed to expect differently? Because he happens to be the Lord? What happens with this collision of two natures? What does it mean that he is fully God and fully human? Or maybe another way of putting it is this. He's no less human because he is Jesus. He's no less God because he is Jesus. He's both. Side by side. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him is all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You have these two things colliding with each other. And remember when we talked about the Gospels and I talked about how each Gospel is written differently to different audiences and so they also trace the genealogies back differently. So that's Matthew and Luke. They're the two with the, with the genealogies. Luke, in chapter 3, wraps that genealogy all the way back to Adam, but not, he, d he doesn't just stop with Adam. Who does he stop with? God. He specifically says in Luke 3.38, he was the son of Adam, meaning he's human, 
who was the son of God, which means came from God. John 8, verse 57 through 59 says, So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You think that was easy for them to swallow? No, the next verse says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. John 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. So what we're going to do is this. I want us to look at what I think is probably one of the greatest collisions of these two things. And that's the temptation of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, Cole, are you ready to uh, pass those out? Do you need a helper? Somebody able to help? Cole? Oh, thanks, Jody. So uh, I'm passing out a sheet right now. And on one side, what you're going to see is just sort of the nature, at least the deity the nature of uh, Jesus' deity, in the sense that Jesus always has been and always will be. So there is an eternity that stretches behind us, which we call past eternity, and then there is an eternity that stretches before us, which is called future eternity. He belongs in both. And then there's a whole bunch of instances where we see him in between. And so I'm going to pass that out. That's for you to look at. Uh, it's a worksheet that I've used in one of my other Sunday Bible classes. And so uh, it has some fill in the blanks that you can do as well. On the back side, you're going to have our main passage for today, which is Luke chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13 says these words. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became very hungry. So what's happened here? Jesus has grown up. He went through that whole little phase when he was 12 years old. It says that he continued to submit himself to his parents and he grew up more and more and more. Meanwhile, his cousin uh, John the Baptist is preaching and John is laying the groundwork. He's laying the groundwork because he's telling the people, hey, listen, you got to get your hearts ready. You need to turn from your wicked ways. And the people are always saying, well, what does that even mean? Like, uh, what are you talking about? And John would say things like this. He'd say, well, if you have an extra cloak, don't keep it. Give it away. Share it. And then tax collectors come to him, and they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? He's like, would you stop charging people too much? You know what you're doing wrong. Stop it, right? <laughs> uh, those of you who are at the conference know where I'm going with that. Those of you who didn't, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> soldiers would come up to John the Baptist. I love reading the commentaries on the soldiers because they just, they, they cannot handle it. They're like, were they Jewish soldiers? Were they Roman soldiers? There's no way they could be Roman soldiers. Why not? I think anyone who was hearing the message of John the Baptist, something inside of them was stirring because he even tells the soldiers, he's like, listen, you need to quit taking bribes. Repent and be baptized. So John was baptizing people in the wilderness and he's talking about that there is a Messiah that's coming and he is the Christ and he is so high above who I am that I can't even untie his sandals. I'm not worthy. Eventually Jesus shows up and you can imagine John just like, okay, that's him right there, you know, and the people turn and they look and I don't think Jesus was extra handsome. He doesn't look like a hippie from the 60s, but who knows? And so, and they look at him and stuff and, and Jesus comes up and he says, I need you a favor, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, listen, if anyone needs to be baptized, it's me by you. And Jesus said, just permit it. 
So he baptizes him, and at that moment, the heavens open up. A voice calls down, this is my beloved son. Or in one, another version, you are my beloved son. And the spirit descends like a dove, and people can see it. And it's almost like a proclamation. This is the son of God. Here's the deity piece that you're talking about. And immediately afterwards, in Luke chapter 4, we find this. That the Holy Spirit guides him into the wilderness. This is right after his baptism. It's kind of convenient because the other parallel passage is Matthew 4. So you can go to Matthew 4 or Luke 4, and both of them are about the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that Satan doesn't speak a whole lot in the Bible. In fact, there are really only three places that Satan speaks in the Bible. Anybody want to guess? What's one? Job. Wow, I didn't think that was going to come out first. Yes, uh, Satan speaks to God about Job. What's the other one? Genesis, yep. God, Satan is speaking to who? Eve in Genesis. And then what's the third? Right here. The temptation of, of Jesus Christ. And so we have Satan coming along, and he is going to say a few things. Uh, just a couple of notes. You'll see that the accounts between Matthew and Luke are a little bit different. They switch temptation number two and temptation number three. Don't get too caught up in that. Uh, and then also the timing is a little bit odd. I just read the beginning of Luke's account, and he's saying that somewhere in the midst of that 40 days is when the temptations were occurring. Matthew puts it towards the end. No big deal there. Uh, just something about Satan. Satan is crafty. We already know that as well. But guess what? He tells the truth. He does. But he uses it to tell his lies, which makes him very cunning. He relies on a specific truth and then he leverages it, which we're about to see. But then I want you to also understand just a quick note about sin. And if you take nothing else away from today's lesson, I hope that you take this point about sin. Sin is not abstract. It's extremely specific. It's particular. It's particular to you. It's tailored to suit you. You know, I, you hear this phrase, you know, I fell into sin. And I think we get this mentality sometimes, like we're walking along the road and there's a sinkhole that develops and we just, you know, it's like we, we fall in or something. That's not how it works. It's very specific to each imago Dei, each image of God. And we're about to witness that in this spot right here, but I just want to go real quick to Proverbs chapter 7, and I'll read this really quick. The, the, the writer of Proverbs, probably Solomon, he says these words in chapter 7. He says, I was at the window of my house. I was looking through a curtain, and I saw some naive young men, and one in particular who obviously lacked common sense. He was crossing the street near the house of an immoral woman, strolling down the path by her house. It was twilight in the evening as deep darkness fell, and the woman approached him. She was seductively dressed in sly of heart, and she was brash, rebellious type, never content to stay at home, and she is often in the streets and markets, soliciting at every corner. And she threw her arms around him, and she kissed him, and with a brazen look, she said, I've just made my peace offerings, and I have fulfilled my vows. You're the one I was looking for. I came out to find you, and here you are. My bed is spread with beautiful blankets and colored sheets of Egyptian linen. 
I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloe and cinnamon, so come, let's drink our fill of love until morning, and let's enjoy each other's caresses. For my husband, he's not home. He's away on a long trip, and he has taken a wallet full of money, which means he's going to be gone a while. It's just you and me. The temptation is specific to him. It's particular to him. It's suited straight for him. And so she seduced him with her pretty speech and enticed him with her flattery and he followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. Solomon says like a stag, a deer that's caught in a trap awaiting the arrow that would pierce its heart or even like a bird that's flying into a snare little knowing that it would cost him his life. And here's what's interesting about it. Sin is particular towards you. And I want that to resonate inside your mind as we go through the temptations of Jesus Christ. I'm going to blast through this a little bit. And I need us to also focus on one other truth, and that is there's no way you can relate to what Jesus is going through. He is God and man. You're not. I'm not. None of us are. How could we relate? Sin is particular to that combination, as we're about to see. So let's go back to Luke. Luke 4, verse 3. The devil says to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I remember as a kid, we would read this. I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. You would e we would even make coloring pages that were really cute, right? Of little rocks that looked like loaves of bread, etc., right? But what's happening in this moment? I want us to try to hone in on what is the temptation. Because from where we stand, it's like, that's not a big deal. He's hungry anyway. He's been in the wilderness 40 days. He's famished. He obviously would love to do so, but what is the devil doing? He is literally trying to rip apart these two entities, the humanity and the deity. He is going to try to use them against each other. So the attribute of the deity is power. Listen, power in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's amoral. It really just depends on who has the power and what their intention is, right? So power in the hands of a politician, we usually don't look at that very favorably. It can actually be a tremendous thing if it's used with good intention, right? But here you have God, and he has tremendous power. And Satan knows this. He's looking at it, he's like, you have the ability, and you're famished. Imagine the bread that your mother makes. I bet Mary is a great cook. Imagine the smell of it, because right now, all the food you want is within reach. All you got to do is just change it. So what is he tapping into with the human side? Self-worship. Self-worship. This is about saying, Jesus, you want something. I know you want something. You deserve it. Take it, right? Use what God has given to get what you want. That's the temptation. The temptation is, it's pretty easy to see that you would love to do this. It's totally within your capabilities, 
Is that true? It's a trick question. It is and it is not. So we know for a fact that Jesus is human. Hebrews 2.17 says that he was like us in all of our ways. He was conceived and born of a woman. He experienced emotions and sensations that everyone else experienced. He obviously has become hungry and thirsty just like any other human. He grew in wisdom and stature, as we already talked about from the age of 12. He was growing in wisdom and stature. He grew weary. He would sleep and all the rest of it. Uh, he, you know, he, he would experience sorrow and grief. He was very much human. But I love to ask people this question. Could Jesus do anything he wanted? Was he omnipresent? Was he omnipotent? Was he omniscient? The truth is, he was not. He was limited. He was intentionally limited. We find this verse... Um, I'm just going to skip to um, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with, the, with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. Other translations would say that he laid aside his privileges. He took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he was humbled himself to the point of death. He was limited. He was limited in his omniscience. God is omniscient. He knows all things. That's what that word means. He knows all things. Did Jesus know all things? The Bible clearly tells us he did not. Matthew 24 says, Jesus' words, these are Jesus' words, concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He did not know who touched him. In Luke chapter 8, you see a story where a woman reaches out. She wants to be healed. What does she do? She touches his cloak. He can literally feel the power leave him. He has no clue. He's like, wait, who, who touched me? He did not know that his cousin John had been beheaded until somebody had reported the news in Matthew chapter 14. And as we already discussed, he grew in wisdom and in stature. As, and as he was growing... Uh, John 15, 15 says, everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, I had to learn it. I learned it, which means inherently, I once did not know it, and then I do. He was limited in his omniscience. He was limited in his omnipotence. Mark 6 says that Jesus says to his disciples, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. And verse 5 says he could not do any miracles there. He could not do any miracles there. His power was limited in what he was able to do. And he wasn't, obviously, omnipresent. You could think of Lazarus, right? And, and after Lazarus dies, what happens? Yeah, Martha comes up to him. She's like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Right? If he's limited in these particular ways, right, what does that mean? Why would that be the case? It almost sounds heretical to think that way. It's almost like you want God to be just as much God up here as he was while he was on this earth. But I think Satan is very much aware of the fact he's very limited. He's limited in the capacity that he allowed himself to be limited so that he could live a human life. And whatever that is, it's being, it's being tested at this moment. And so Satan is saying right now, you have this capacity you can do this. And Jesus is faced with the dilemma, knowing that his humanity would love nothing more. But is he going to compromise what he came to earth to do in the first place? 
Is he going to use his deity to satisfy his humanity? Jesus replies, my humanity has already satisfied. This is me paraphrasing. My humanity is already satisfied by the word of God. He says it this way. Jesus answered Satan. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Matthew's version adds these words, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I am content in my humanity by what God gives me. Okay, test number two. So Luke, five starting, uh, Luke 4, starting verse 5, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Now, guess what? There is some truth there. <laughs> He's called the son of the earth, all right? all right? Satan has been given a measure of dominion. Satan has been given a measure of sovereign control, believe it or not. Does he have the power to deliver this? Mm, I'm not sure. But he's saying to Jesus, he's allowing him to see all of it. So what's he saying? I think sometimes we look at this and we think, oh, wow, that would be great. I could control all of this stuff. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what he's showing Jesus is, you came here for that. You came here to sacrifice yourself for those people. What if I just give them to you? You know that you're going to suffer emotionally. You're going to be betrayed. You'll probably even be surprised at the way that you're betrayed because it's going to be with a kiss. You are going to suffer emotionally. You are going to suffer physically. Your whole backside is going to be ripped off before they pin you to a cross. You're going to be struggling to breathe. You're not even sure which of the last few breaths will be your last. You will suffer physically. And you will watch those around you suffer physically. And then you will suffer spiritually. God will turn his back on you. For those of you who don't believe that, do you even know what Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani means? You'll find it in Matthew chapter 27. There are the words of Jesus as he cries up to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn his back because Jesus became sin for us. And Satan is fully aware of this. And I'm wondering how, how aware Jesus is. I think, he's, I think he's completely aware. And Satan's like, what if I just gave it to you? What if, what if you didn't even have to go through that? What if I could just, wouldn't it be far more easier to just take it now? All you gotta do is bow down to me. That's it. No pain, just that's it. Hey, listen, if you don't think that's a temptation, take a small sliver of what that must have been like for Jesus and apply it to your own lives. How many times do we look at the easier way out? How many times have we tried to convince ourselves that, you know what? All I need to do is this one bad, tiny little thing, tell this little lie. Life will be good, right? I could take it. It's right there within reach. No one would even know. We face that dilemma all the time. Author and theologian George Barrett characterizes this temptation as the old but ever new temptation to do evil that good may come, to justify the illegitimacy of the means by the greatness of the end. And that's the temptation. Satan's saying, it's all yours. 
And of course, what then does Jesus say? He says, Jesus answers him, he says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I will never take a knee to you, no matter what it costs me. And how many of us can relate to that? So, temptation number three. Starting in verse 9, it says, Then Satan led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which I found out is about 180 feet off the ground. It's pretty high. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. I mean, it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's this temptation? This is a fascinating temptation to me. So he's standing on this temple. He's like, why don't you just jump? Okay, so why would that be a temptation? <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, that was easy. Yeah, I'm good. You know, just, just back, back away. Even if there's water underneath. Some of you are like, no way, right? Why is it a temptation? Is it a thrill? What's going on? And, and, and Satan's giving him actual scripture that's true. He's like, they'll catch you. What's the temptation? What's, being, what's, what's happening here? I think what's happening is this. I think Satan is inherently proposing a question to Jesus. He's saying, if you jump, God will get you, Right? Prove it. I mean, if he's a loving father, won't he take care of his kids? It says in the Bible that he, that he will. Show me. Those of you who have kids, you've probably experienced this on a smaller level. How many times have you been walking through the, through the mall and your child, and I'm not going to list any names, but maybe it's your daughter or something, and, and, and they say to you, Dad, I, I really, really, really want this pair of pants, you know, and they're trying to convince you. And then this phrase might come out, if you really love me, you'll get me these pants. Okay, is that true? Uh, now, come on. When Christmas time comes, and I know which pants that she wants, am I going to get them for her? Yeah. Is it because I love her? Well, sure. But she's standing there at that moment saying what? If you love me, you know, and looking really sweet and super cute, right? And, you know, I, she's not, she, I, I'm not wrapped around her finger at all. I, I, so I buy her two pair. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I, but I mean, when, when they're saying that, what is the, what's the point? And how many of you have relationships that are just like this? If you really love me, you'll do this. If you really love me, if you really cared about me, or if I was really important to me, you would do this. You would be on time. You would agree with me. You would lose weight. You would gain weight. You would, you would allow me to dress the way I want to dress. Right? When, you, when you're looking at your kids, you know, and they're, and they're talking to you, if you really love me, you'd get me a cat. Or the boys, if you really love me, you, you'd, you'd let me take the car out. Right? It's all this conditional type of relationship. And what it is, is, is it's a relationship that's built on control. A relationship that's built on control where you are creating an imaginary relationship where you get to call the shots. And you say things, and I'll even take it 
deeper into your relationship with God, you'll say things like this, or believe things like this. A loving God would never send someone to hell. A loving God would never allow me to suffer. A loving God would never punish me for something that I did wrong. A loving God would never take away my loved ones. My greatest nightmare is to stand over the grave of my child. How could a loving God let that happen? Because in my mind, that would not be a loving God. A loving God would bring me happiness. A loving God would protect my family. When I first started my business in Georgia delivering concrete, I was so nervous because I had ordered a very expensive concrete truck that was being shipped from Japan. And I was really excited and super nervous. And so I went outside of my driveway, and my wife can attest to this, with my kids' colored chalk. And I got the specifications, and I got on the ground, and I literally drew out exactly where the truck would sit in my driveway. And I made the drivetrain and everything. Jim, you would have been so proud. It's like I all the components and all this other kind of stuff. And my neighbor came out and he said to me, he's like pretty excited. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty scared too. And he goes, well, you know what? You believe in God? And I said, yep. And he goes, and you love him, right? And I said, yep. And he goes, well, then it won't fail. A loving God would never allow your business to fail. Of course, he didn't stand with me in court in 2007, five years later, as I filed for bankruptcy. You don't control the relationship. And I wonder what Jesus is thinking as he's standing there, wondering, God, you, I mean, you got me, right? You do have me. I believe that you love me. Did he realize that God would forsake him later? Did those thoughts come through his mind? This was a temptation that we can't quite grasp. But I think we can grasp just a small sliver of it, which is essentially this. God... If you love me, you, you're not going to turn your back on me. You're not going to forsake me, right? And we put it to the test. And we put it to the test. Which is why he then says, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he was probably very frustrated, he left him. And Luke's account says, until an opportune time, dot, dot, dot. But I want to tell you this. I struggle. I struggle with these things. I think you struggle with these things. I think even though we look at Jesus and we see a God-man and we can't quite fully grasp that and we can see the limitations of his, of his, of his deity that he allowed himself to have so that he would be human, we might look at that and say, I, I don't quite get it, but the reason that it's there is so that we can relate to it. Hebrews 4.15 says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God and there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most because he didn't dip into his deity when things got rough. He didn't depend on his deity to get him out of tough situations. 
He was tempted just as you're tempted, just as I am tempted. And yet he remained close, even in his humanity, to the pureness and the holiness that God needed him to have all the way to the cross. And then he gave us this promise in Matthew 28. He said, these are the last, last words of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And where Jesus had to experience what it would feel like for God to forsake him, you and I do not. He went to the cross willingly, and even throughout his temptations that he had, he went without a single sin, so that your sin, your particular, specific sin, would be placed on him. And he offers it up. And it's all for you. Because there is no forsaking. There's no way that God's going to turn his back on us. He specifically tells us, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. What a tremendous promise. I hope that we can find tremendous strength in the humanity of Jesus. I hope that we can come closer to his weaknesses, his, his temptations. I hope we can come closer to his deity. I hope we can come closer to knowing Jesus. I think we see hope in the particularity of the sin that we have. This weekend, we talked a lot about the sin, the sexual sin that we have. And that is difficult, difficult stuff to discuss. And it is very particular to each and every person. Do you not find any hope in knowing that Jesus Christ, who died for you, he experienced the same. And he didn't get his get-out-of-jail-free card out. And he didn't use his deity to remove himself. He fought that battle, and he fought it for you. Gracious God, I thank you so much. For what you've given, you've given a tremendous sacrifice, a tremendous gift to us. And Lord, as we continue to just explore the life of Jesus Christ, can we know who he is? Can we understand the things that he went through? Can we relate them to our own lives and then also depend upon the grace that was given to us to draw us closer to you, to sanctify us, to give us salvation? Lord, I thank you so much for all that you have given. I thank you for the love that you poured out through Jesus. I thank you for the fact that we have these, these men who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were able to write down these stories and all of these particular truths so that we also could understand them. And I ask, Lord, that you just be with us as we go through this life, as we go through these temptations, to find the strength that we need Thank you so much for what you have given. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.